turning your Bibles to John chapter 1. We're going to be looking at chapter 1, verses 19 through 28. And in this whole chapter, John, John the Baptist come, you know, comes and goes. So he, he is, uh, he's not the main topic, Jesus is, but, but he, is, uh, he is one of the main characters in this first, first bit. And, and we're going to see today what his what his kind of cryptic testimony means. What is he what is he saying when when someone when they come to uh, come to him from Jerusalem to investigate him? Uh, and so then we'll see uh, we'll see the significance of it. Uh, it's not the actions, and, and it's not really the the words uh, so much as it is what the words actually point to. So they they're. Um, you read this, you think, well, well, he's not said much. He hasn't said a whole lot about what his ministry is, but, but in, in keeping it brief, he's, he's eluding the authorities, not giving them a direct answer. And then also for those of us who are reading it, we are uh, assuming we have a good knowledge of, of scriptures. We are seeing exactly what he means. So uh, this, I think, is what's happening in this chapter. And uh, hopefully I can uh, bring that out today. Uh, let's uh, let's pray and we'll begin. Father, thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. Thank you for the way you have loved us, the way you have sent Jesus to uh, as God with us, as Emmanuel. Thank you, Father, that you have uh, you've called us out of darkness into your glorious light. Thank you that you've changed our lives and, and uh, that you. Uh, we're so patiently calling, tenderly calling, as the song says, and over and over again until we finally came. I'm so thankful for that. We just pray, Father, you'd be with us today and uh, just um, uh, work in us through your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember that song, uh, Softly and Tenderly. They used to play that as the invitational hymn at the end. And hold on to your seat because you just knew it was talking to you you had to go I, I, over and over again the lord is talking to me i've got to go and eventually did and that's what i mean he, he just kept calling kept calling until yeah. finally so yeah. gotta do it. Amen. 19 through 28 now this is the testimony of john when the jews sent priests and levites from jerusalem in order to ask him who are you and he confessed, and he did not deny. And he confessed that I am not the Messiah. And they asked him, who then are you? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Therefore they said to him, who are you? In order that we may give an answer to the ones who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he began to say, I am a voice crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord just as Isaiah the prophet said. Now the ones who, were, who uh, were sent were from the Pharisees. And they asked him and said to him, why therefore are you baptizing if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them saying, I baptize with water, but in your midst stands one whom you do not know. He is the one coming after me, who was before me, whose strap of his sandals I am not worthy to untie. These things happened in Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptized. We looked last week at the temple language of John 1, 14 through 18. 
focusing in particular on the language that John uses, the author, to describe Jesus's entry into the world. The word became flesh, he said, and pitched his tent. He dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us, and we, be we beheld his glory, glory like a unique son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We focused on these two words, dwelt and glory, and how they reflected the theme of Jesus as the tabernacling presence of God that John will then go on to develop throughout his gospel. And it is here that we get the initial subtle language that introduces it to us, that temple theology. Along with the creational theology that blends the two together, creation and the tabernacling presence of God in Christ blended together. The idea is this. The world itself was created as a tabernacle for God himself to dwell in, a place for him to take his rest. And he was to do, do so through mankind, typified in Adam as the image of God as he placed his image in the temple that he had created. And he placed his image there so that it might rule on his behalf. As we know, this did not turn out too well for Adam uh, or for us, but it led the whole world into darkness, a darkness that could only be overcome when the light of the world entered. Enter the light of the world. The, world, the word become flesh, the new man, the new Adam, Jesus, the light of the world the very image of God himself. It turns out that creation itself was a sign pointing to a new creation with a new man in whom humanity is summed up, Jesus, Israel's Messiah. And God has now returned to his temple in the person of Jesus, and he is merging heaven and earth just as the temple was the place where heaven and earth met. So now the body of Jesus is the place where heaven and earth meet fully and finally. He is the new temple of God. And we, as his little temples in him, we all, uh, John says, like Moses and Exodus, but not like Israel under the law and without the spirit. We all look upon the glory of God in the face of Christ. And we see that God has indeed returned to his temple. But it is a newly rebuilt temple, not made with hands, built through the flesh of Jesus. John is not done portraying Jesus in this way, but he will turn to other themes in this section. Through the testimony of John the Baptist, other aspects of the ident identity of Jesus will emerge, specifically about his mission. And his confession, John's confession, will help us to locate Jesus on the map of first century Jewish expectation and see how these expectations are being reworked around Jesus, Israel's Messiah. So in our story, the Jews from Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to John to inquire about his identity. And in keeping with John's temple theology, it is indeed interesting that it is the priests and the Levites who come the ones responsible for the temple service, they come to John the Baptist to see just who he thinks he is. And what is also interesting is that John himself, John the Baptist himself, is of priestly descent. Luke 1, 5 and following. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. So the, the division is the division of the priest. He had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. Who are the daughters of Aaron? Well, 
their priestly descent, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the requirements of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. And then they gave birth to John the Baptist. Now, we don't know about John whether he uh, performed priestly duties, but it is certainly possible. But he is, of, he is the chosen forerunner to the messianic announcement that God is returning to his temple, ending the Aaronic priesthood, but continuing that order of Melchizedek that will never end. But there is more to John's testimony, a confession and a denial. When the Jews sent the priests and Levites from Jerusalem, they came asking a question. Who are you? Now, this is not a question about what is your name or where did you come from or, uh, or who are your parents? It is a question about John's identity and mission. It's more like, who do you think you are and what do you think you're doing? Now, we know that the Pharisees are the ones who sent these priests and Levites. And it is primarily, as we read through the Gospel of John, it's primarily the Pharisees who are called the Jews in John's Gospel. Uh, this has been a, it's been a topic of, of scholarship recently uh, because everybody's looking for something that's anti-Semitic, you know. And so it's a kind of a derogatory term within, within John's Gospel. But it's, it's speaking to someone in particular and, and to this group uh, of leaders within, uh, within Israel uh, the Pharisees who are, and they're kind of singled out as the Jews in, in John's gospel. They epitomize the leadership in Israel. And in this instance, they are not going to get on board with John unless they know something about what he is doing. We learn that he has been baptizing people and apparently preaching a message about someone who is coming after him. The one who is coming after him, he says more than once in verses 15 and 27, is preferred before me because he was before me. And he adds, I'm not worthy to loosen the strap of his sandal. The Pharisees are like our modern journalists. Journalists, wink, wink, that's what they are. They are really nothing more than those who keep the preferred party and people in power. And they are in charge of investigating anyone who is a threat to that power. The self-appointed investigative journalist who must see to it that only their own stay in power at the temple and over the people. They're not much interest, interested in truth unless it suits their power plans. Then they, then they scream about truth and the traditions and how they're being violated and how something must be done to get rid of these people. So-and-so has to go because he's violating the traditions, the norms. And all of this sounds familiar, doesn't it? Because we're living in this day. But it's no different. It's no different because power was what power is today. A fine servant, but a terrible master. In this world of Jesus's day, what we call politics and religion were one. There was no division, and it is a mistake to talk about them as separate spheres of influence. This is true for our world too, to some extent. We've just changed the deities. The deities are now science or something like that, something to control the people. And that's how power works. So they send to investigate John, who is going a bit rogue, carrying out baptisms down at the Jordan River 
without seeking the blessing of the ruling party, the Pharisees. And they keep digging until they get something of an answer. Who are you? Or how do you identify yourself and your mission? What are you doing and why? And we might understand why the answers are a bit cryptic, because that's what they're doing. They're investigating, trying to incriminate him. They keep digging until they get an answer. And their questions reveal something about their suspicions. They're accustomed to people making identity claims, even messianic claims, and they want to nip it in the bud quickly. John first tells them who he is not. I am not the Messiah, which must have been comforting, but it doesn't satisfy their curiosity. There are other potential candidates for John to claim he is. Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? To both of these, he answers no. He is not Elijah, and he is not the prophet. Now, both of these need a bit of explanation, especially the first, because in the other Gospels, we are told that, in fact, he is Elijah, or he is, according to Luke, coming in the spirit and the power of Elijah. But what is the significance of Elijah and the prophet? We tend to know who Elijah is, uh, but, but why would they ask if John is he? It has to do with Jewish expectation. Elijah, as the prophet who anointed a king, in particular Jehu, to purge the wicked king Ahab and his wicked wife Jezebel from the land and to rid it of idolatry and return it to the Lord's rule. Remember the word to Elijah. I have 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed a knee to Baal. Go and anoint Jehu, right? So go and anoint this king, and he is going to take care of them. Elijah is part of the purging of the idolatrous prophets and turning the nation back to the Lord. And Malachi had prophesied that there would be another Elijah who would presumably do a similar thing in order to turn the hearts of the fathers to the sons and the sons to the fathers, lest the curse come upon all. He is to come, Malachi says, before the day of the Lord. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts so that it will leave neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will arise with healing in his wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. And you will, you will tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of, Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him and Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he will restore the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. Now, the problem here, if you haven't already felt it, is that John denies that he is Elijah. But then he goes on to say that he is doing what the very forerunner of the returning Davidic king was expected to do namely the mission of Elijah. His confession, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. The other gospel writers link this function to Elijah. And Jesus says, referring to John the Baptist in Mark 9, 13, he has already come and they did with him as they pleased, referring, of course, to John the Baptist. 
Zechariah, his father is told in Luke 1.17, it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children, both from Malachi 4, and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. If, as the other gospels have said, he is indeed Elijah in some sense, why does he then deny that he is here? One, he is not technically Elijah. That's not his name. And he is being investigated by a group that has nefarious goals. His name is John, and he is about to, he is not about to draw attention to himself by calling himself Elijah. In fact, he is deflecting attention from himself to Jesus, and he is too modest to presume to be Elijah. He's just, in his own words, and in the words of the prophet Isaiah, a voice crying in the, in the wilderness, citing Isaiah 40, preparing the way for the one upon whom people ought to look and give their attention. It's when, as Richard Hayes puts it, we read backwards, and as the gospel writers read backwards, that we and they realize that he is, in fact, Elijah. This is how Jesus himself interprets John. If you can handle this interpretation of who John the Baptist was, Jesus says, Elijah has already come, and the authorities did with him what they wished. John's humility prevented him from making such a bold claim. And the claim itself wasn't important. His testimony to Jesus's work was the crucial thing. And that's what he brings out here. John is not wishing to bring attention to himself, but to Jesus. And thus he minimizes his role while cryptically affirming that he is the forerunner of God's returning Davidic king spoken of in Isaiah 40. He is just a voice crying in the wilderness. Who is this one who will come after the way is prepared? It is none other than the Davidic king. And in the context of this quote from Isaiah 40, verse 3, the one to come is the Lord God, and his arm will rule for him, the very extension of God himself by which he rules. This is the one John is referring to. And this is the context that he brings in as he quotes this portion of a verse. Who knows? He may have been preaching on this passage and then claiming that he is he. This one that is coming after him will shepherd his people, tend his flock, gently lead them into the land. He is David, so to speak, as we find out later in Isaiah 55. He is the good shepherd of Israel. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up. Do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense is before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. This is what John is referring to and why he quotes the one, uh, one verse from Isaiah 40, verse 3. And this is what he wants to draw attention to. And then there's this other character, and John denies being him too. What about this other person, the prophet? Who is he? This prophet, in Jewish expectation and in the scriptures, is to be a prophet like Moses, whom the Lord will send and the people will obey. Deuteronomy 18.50, 
The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen, and you shall listen to him. Even at the, at the close of the Torah, at the end of Deuteronomy, at the end of the canon, uh, uh, canonization process, this prophet had not yet come. Where in the final few verses of the Pentateuch, we see, uh, we see that it says, Now Joshua, the son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. And the sons of Israel listened to him and did as the Lord commanded Moses. Since that time, no prophet has arisen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Note that, that phrase, since that time. When is this time? The author, whoever the author is of this particular portion, is not Moses. Moses has already passed from the, from the scene. But this writer says, since that time, no prophet has arisen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord saw new face to face, for all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to perform in the land of Egypt, against Pharaoh, all his servants, and all his land, and for all the mighty power, and for all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. But John denies being the prophet, preferring, preferring only to refer, him, uh, to, to refer to himself with the identity of the preparer of the way of the Lord. Now, having listened to all he has said about his identity in his own words, the investigators inquire about his actions. Perhaps it was expected that Elijah would baptize people or the prophet, but why would John do so if he identifies with neither? This is the question they have for him. And to us, it seems strange too. Why baptism for this one coming before Jesus? It must have some meaning beyond the act itself, and it does. It's not exactly Christian baptism, like we practiced a few weeks ago, but that's partly because Christian baptism has been separated from its scriptural base. In baptism, we talk as, as though our baptism is a brand new thing with Jesus, and it is in some sense, in that it is now focused on Jesus's death and resurrection as the pattern for our lives. The way that we die and rise with him. This is true. But our baptism, our Christian baptism, is not completely separate from the meaning of John's baptism, as we often think. We saw this in Mark when we went through it too, but I think we I don't think we discussed it very much. You'll notice in this text that in verse 28, John the author sums up this section by describing how these things were done in Bethabara beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. This seems like a small detail, a summing up of the historical situation, but it is more than that. When John the author refers to the Jordan where John was baptizing, he is not simply saying this for the sake of history. What, symbolized, what symbolism might the Jordan River have in this regard? All of this is related to the imagery of Exodus and conquest, the Exodus from Egypt and the conquest of the land. If John were to go to the Sea of Galilee to baptize, no one would get the connection. But to do it in the Jordan River means that the present is now imitating the past. It means that God is doing a new thing, a new exodus, and a new conquest. And John is saying that he is announcing that, and Jesus is going to perform it. This exodus and conquest is what was promised in Isaiah 40. That's our connection with, with our text that he quotes. God is returning to Zion, and God's people are now coming out of their slavery, out of exile, 
And when they come out of exile, they will enter the land to take it, so to speak. They will perform a conquest. The first exodus and the conquest were figures, and Jesus is the reality. He is the one who will bring it all to pass. All of this is wrapped up in in John's words and deeds, and it's why John doesn't need to explain it to them or to us as readers. All he needs to say is that I am baptizing at the Jordan, and I'm announcing that the Lord is returning to Zion. That's enough, because they would know the texts. In humble fashion, he exalts Jesus and diminishes himself. But what does this baptism, a baptism celebrating the exodus from Egypt or Babylon and the past and future conquest of the land, have to do with our baptism? Though it has seldom been noticed, our baptism is actually a sign pointing to our redemption from the Egypt, the Babylon of sin, and a precursor to the conquest of the promised land of the resurrection, our glorification with Jesus, the Messiah, and the ruling of God's sons in the renewed earth. Remember Romans, Romans 8 in particular, uh, how Paul takes us as the newly reconstituted people of God and the Messiah from slavery in Egypt to freedom and righteousness in the resurrection. In Romans 6, he begins this. His language is laced with Egypt imagery. Do you not know that that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. The talk about slavery and freedom is talk about Egypt and deliverance from Egypt. He then takes us, the readers, to Sinai to discuss in chapter 7 of Romans how Jesus also frees Israel from the condemnation of the Mosaic law. Then the grand finale of God's saving purposes begins in chapter 8. Those who walk by the Spirit on their way to the promised land are now forgiven. There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. 8.1. Those who are led by the Spirit that is, through the wilderness, these are the sons of God, as Israel was son of God in Exodus 4.22 on her way out of the promise, out of of Egypt. They have the spirit of adoption as sons in anticipation of the realization of it when they get to that land of promise. We don't shrink back from the journey across the wilderness into the land because we have been given the spirit of God's son, Paul says. It's the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. As we walk in this world of suffering, Paul says, we are sons waiting on the inheritance that we will enjoy with our Messiah. And the creation itself is awaiting its own transformation at the revelation of the children of God and their coming glory, verses 19 through 21. We are currently in the wilderness, Paul says, eating of the first fruits of the spirit, the fruit of the land ahead of the land, so to speak making our way by the Spirit to the promised land of the renewed creation, which will coincide with the receiving of our final adoption as sons, which Paul equates with the redemption of our body, 8.23. This whole section from Romans 6 through Romans 8 has been about mapping the figural history of Israel onto our existence in a grand prefigure. God is doing with his his present people what he did with Israel, except now 
It has as its center Jesus and his death and resurrection, around which it all turns. Israel, if she finds her future at all, finds her future in Jesus the Messiah, who brought about a new exodus and conquest. And we Gentiles find that we are in this new exodus as well, as one in the body of the Messiah, on our way to the promised land of the resurrection. Thus, what John's baptism prefigured is what has now become the reality for the apostles and for us, at least in part. John was saying that through the baptizing work ahead of Jesus, God is about to do a new work, a new creation, a new exodus. And I, John, am here at the Jordan baptizing people who will participate in this new exodus that God himself is bringing about in Christ. This is what his baptism is about. It will be new creation brought about again by God's word, the word, the logos, uh, by God's son, the new Adam, and he will build the great temple by his body. Though John himself wouldn't live to see the labor come to fruition, he no doubt rejoiced in it in his death and is rejoicing in it now. And rejoicing in his own faithfulness, come what may, to point to the returning king who would lead his people <coughs> into the land. That eternal life, and this is where we kind of come back to John. Eternal life is not something in John that just means, hey, one day you're going to live forever. You're going to die, but you're going to live. It's not that. It is the land of the resurrection. It is the land that is spoken of in terms of, of exodus from Egypt, conquest of the land. When you get there, it will become a reality. We've given the spirit uh, in the present, but in the future, it's going to become a reality as the, as the spirit brings us into that land. So John is saying through his baptizing work ahead of Jesus, God is about to do this new work, new creation. And this, in part, will become the message of John's gospel. The resurrection is coming. You'll see this in chapter 10. You'll see it in 11. When he raises Lazarus from the dead, uh, then he's going to go on to say, I am the resurrection and the life. He's already spoken of the way that he is the life. He is the one who gives life. He is very life itself. He is the resurrection in the future. Come back into the present. And those who participate in him, who we believe in him, who come to him, these are the ones who will inherit that age to come. The resurrection is coming in accordance with Jewish expectation, but now Jesus is the one who can grant it. He is the one who is in the center of it. He gives life. He himself is the life, the life of the age to come, the life of the resurrection. Experiencing it ahead of time through faith in him, anyone who believes in him has eternal life. And he says in chapter six, I will raise him up at the last day. Resurrection comes for those who have life and they have life only through him, through abiding in him, through coming to him and finding their rest in him. What John the Baptist is announcing indeed becomes an invitation to all. Come and join those who are coming out of Egypt in God's grand exodus, his new deliverance. Come and see the one who is leading us out of Egypt into the resurrection. Come and see. That's the invitation.